Well, like a lot of your kids, when my son Levi, who's 14 now, was two, three, four, five, he thought the world revolved around him. Maybe your kids have done the same. Maybe you think the same thing. <laughs> my, my son Levi, uh, when he was younger, when we would try to describe relationships to him, like when I would tell him, your mom is my wife, Darby is my wife, he would say, no, she's my mama. I, right, I know, but it's, it's my wife. No, 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 it's, it's my mama. When we would try to explain Darby's mother, who is his grandmother, when we would try to tell him and explain the relationship there, she's your grandmother because she's your mom's mom. Jeesh, who Levi called her Darby's mom, Jeesh is mom's mom. No, she's my Jeesh. Everything revolved around him. And our job as parents, right, is to help kill that in our kids and to help them see the world does not revolve around them. Otherwise, they would sing songs about themselves. Now, I'm going to share something with you, just kind of make a point here. I'm not trying to be blasphemous or anything. I'm just trying to make a point here that if we don't kill this in us, then we grow up and the songs become about us like this. Oh Lord, myself, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds my hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, my power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my savior God to me. How great I am, how great I am. You see, if we don't kill this idea that the world revolves around us and that we are the Lord of the universe, then it begins to take on very destructive and painful uh, effects in our lives. And the same thing is true for us. Even today, we ask the question, how do we kill this inside of us so that we don't think the world revolves around us. Well, we're in a study of Colossians right now. We're going through Colossians verse by verse. So if you got your Bible, open up to Colossians chapter one, open up our app, the City Church Lubbock. You can download it in your app store and the verses and the notes are all going to be there for you. But we've said the book of Colossians is like a driver's manual. It's like driver's ed that helps us learn how to do the Christian life and how to do church together as followers of Jesus. And we aren't just studying it in here. Uh, we're studying it in our city groups, our small group Bible studies that meet throughout the week. So if you're not in a group, join a group, jump on our app, select city groups, and you can find a group or you can start a group for you, your family, your friends. And Pastor Brandon will be in touch with you to help you start that group. We're studying Colossians in our groups, verse by verse. We're studying Colossians in our daily devotionals on our app. And so I just invite you to join us in our study of Colossians, not just in here, but in our groups as we read it and study it and pray about it together. And in our daily devotionals where we provide more commentary and study questions and, and prayer points for you in your daily life. But here's what we said the book of Colossians is all about. Christ supreme is the theme of Colossians. Christ supreme overall and in all. And this changes everything about the world and everything about our lives. And what we mean by Christ supreme is we're saying Jesus is worthy. He's worthy of our love, our worship, our lives, our devotion. We're saying Jesus is sufficient when we say Christ is supreme, that, that he is the one that will satisfy the thirst and the hunger in your soul, that your soul is longing for, and he is sufficient to do so. And we need nothing else besides Jesus. Christ supreme means that Jesus is God's will for your life. That this life is not about finding yourself. It's about finding and knowing 
Jesus. That's what we mean when we say Christ is supreme. Last week, Brandon did a wonderful job preaching about Christ being supreme in your life. And that results in faith, love, and hope, and obedience overflowing up out of your life. And if that's not there, then I wouldn't be so sure that you're a Christian. Like if you don't have the fruit that matches the tree you're claiming to be, then maybe you shouldn't be so sure. And like Paul said, you should test yourself and see whether you're really in the faith. Jesus said an apple tree produces apples, an orange tree produces apples. If you're a Christian, you're going to have the fruit of a Christian life. We talked about that last week. Christ will be supreme in your life. This week, we're looking at the most important verses about Jesus in all of the New Testament. And so buckle up, open your Bible, follow along with me. We're going to grow in our knowledge of Jesus, which results always in the worship of Jesus, the strengthening of our faith and the strengthening of our evangelistic efforts. We're able to more readily give a hope or an answer for the hope that we have in Christ. And so we're going to study these verses together. Colossians 1, 15 through 23, we're going to look at three major statements, key beliefs, truths about Jesus this morning. Colossians 1, starting in verse 15, follow along in your Bible or in our app. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realm and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities, and the unseen world. Everything, watch this, key words here today, everything, all things were created through him, that's Jesus, and for him, that's Jesus. Everything was created by Jesus and for Jesus. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning and supreme over all who rise from the dead. Some translations say he's the firstborn among all those who rise from the dead. What it's saying there is that Christ was the first one to rise from the grave. And so all who put their faith and trust in Jesus are born again into this new spiritual family and our brothers and sisters of Christ become co-heirs with Christ. And so in the same way Christ was raised from the dead, the firstborn supreme over all who rise from the dead, we will too. So he is first in everything. For God, watch this, in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. So let's, let's break this down a little bit and then we'll keep going. So here's the first big idea, major statement, key belief, truth about Jesus that Paul wants us to know. Number one, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus said it like this. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. Make no mistake, Jesus claimed to be God. He wasn't some good moral teacher. He wasn't some philosopher. He wasn't some cult leader. Jesus claimed to be God himself. And he said it like this. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. Paul is telling us here in Colossians chapter one, Jesus is like a mirror reflecting who God is and what God is like. Hebrews chapter one says it like this. The son, Jesus radiates the glory of God and is the exact representation of his being. The New Testament teaching is clear. Jesus is God and there is no other God. Jesus alone is God. Some might say, well, what about the God of the Old Testament? Seems a little bit different than the God of Jesus of the New Testament. No, it's one and the same. 
That was Jesus. Jesus has always existed. He is God. In Genesis chapter one, God says, let us make man in our own image. From the very beginning, God is identifying himself in a plural sense that he is one God eternally existing in three persons, father, son, and the Holy Spirit. So this God, Jesus, that we learn about in the New Testament was the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He's the God of the Old Testament. He's the God of the New Testament. He's the God of today. His name is Jesus. So, so what does that mean that Jesus is God? Well, first of all, if you're following along in our app, here's what, here's what this means. Letter A, Jesus is eternal. That's what Paul said. Jesus is eternal. He's always existed. He wasn't created. John chapter one says it like this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then later in John one, it says the word became flesh. That's Jesus and made his dwelling among us. So Jesus has always existed. He is eternal because he is God. Scientists would describe an uncaused cause that must have existed before everything that you and I know, all matter and everything that we see, everything in the universe, there must have been an uncaused cause before everything that we now see. Jesus is that uncaused cause. He has always existed, Paul says. Secondly, letter B, if Jesus is God, that means Jesus rules. He rules over all things. Paul says he is supreme over all things, seen and unseen. That means he is Lord. And Paul writes in Philippians chapter two, that all will acknowledge this one day, that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day, whether it's in this life or the next, when you stand before God after you die, and the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and then to face judgment, so whether you believe in Jesus or not, you will see Jesus one day. And the scripture says you will bow your knee before him, whether you believed in him or not, because he is God and he rules over all things. Hebrews one says it like this, everything, the father has given everything to the son as his inheritance. Ephesians chapter one says it like this, all things are under his authority. All things are under his authority. Jesus is supreme and rules as a king over all things. In fact, in verse 13 and 14 that we looked at last week, that it's through the gospel that we are rescued, you remember this, from the dominion of darkness and brought into the what? Into the kingdom of the son he loves. You see, if you're a follower of Jesus, you belong to the king and you live in a kingdom where Jesus rules as king. In fact, it said in 13 and 14 that you were purchased. When you were rescued from the dominion of darkness, you were purchased from your master, Satan, and you were brought into the kingdom of the son, that is Jesus, who is now king. He is your king, which means this, you aren't in charge and you don't belong to yourself. You belong to Jesus. You belong to the king. And the great news about that is as a co-heir with Christ, as brothers and sisters of Jesus, who is the firstborn among those who will rise from the grave, if Jesus is king and he's royalty, and you're a brother, you're a sister of the king, because you're in the family of God, that makes you royalty. And as Jesus rules and reigns over all things, you and I rule and reign and will rule and reign under the Lordship of Jesus forever one day 
on a new earth with new city and new bodies. So Jesus rules. Third, letter C, Jesus being God means that Jesus is creator. Paul says that Jesus created all things. All things were created through him, both spiritual and material, things seen and unseen. They are all a gift from Jesus. And in the beginning, when God through Jesus made all things, it was all very good, God said. And so we worship the creator, not the created things. We worship the creator who is Jesus. See, Paul is saying here that Jesus is not some other cult figure, some other new prophet among many. He is the one through whom the entire universe was made. Now you might be thinking, well, what about evil? What about all the evil and suffering that we find and that we see and we experience in this world? Well, all things were created by Jesus and you and I were given a choice to worship him as Lord or to rebel against him. And in the very beginning, God said, if you sin, if you rebel against me, if you choose to make you the center of the universe rather than me, then a curse will come upon your body and upon this world. It's the curse of sin, it's called death. And so in Genesis chapter three, we learn about the curse of sin, that our sin has cursed this world, it's cursed our bodies, it's cursed everything. And so everything is dying and decaying and will die. But one day Jesus, our creator will return. He will make all things new. He has not abandoned his creation. He has not given up on his creation. He has not ceded his creation to the curse of sin and to Satan. No, he will return. He will put all things under his feet. Jesus says the old will be gone, the new will come, and all things, not just you and I and new bodies, but even this earth will be redeemed and the old will be gone and there will be a new earth that will live forever. Jesus being creator means that Jesus is designer. That means this world and your body was designed to function in a certain way because it was designed by the designer who is Jesus. And so when you do things or live in a way that you weren't designed to do and that you weren't designed to live, it brings pain and destruction. And so as followers of Jesus, having the revelation of God in his word, the design, the way things are supposed to be in his word, we submit ourselves to it and we say, Jesus, your good design is good and perfect and pleasing and I will pursue it. So I will pursue, embrace and pursue my God-given identity and my God-given sexuality. I will do things your way because you designed them to be done in a certain way. And to reject or to rebel against the design is to reject or rebel against Jesus and his good plan and his good will, his good design, and it will only result in pain and destruction and regret. Jesus has a way this life works and it will result in your ultimate satisfaction and joy. And as followers of Jesus, we must trust that. And we must believe that regardless of the temptation or the pressure or the culture telling us something different. That your ultimate satisfaction and joy will be found in following Jesus and doing things his way because he is creator, he is designer. Fourth, Jesus being God means this, letter D. Jesus is preeminent. That's just a big word that means Jesus is first. 
He's the purpose of all things. He is first in all things, Paul says. Everything exists for his fame and his glory. This also means, Paul says, that Jesus is the head of the church. The church is his body and Jesus is the head, which means you and I, newsflash, are not the head. I'm not the head as the pastor of this church. Jesus is the head of the church. And so the church submits to him in all things, to the lordship of Jesus, which means this church, you will hear no from the head of the church sometimes. You will hear, no, that's not the way that's supposed to work. No, that's not the way this is supposed to, to, to happen. No, you're, you're not going to get that. As a loving parent, the head of the church says no sometimes because he loves you and he wants what's best for you and your ultimate satisfaction is joy is found in doing things his way. Now today, it's kind of fashionable to be anti-church and those of us who've lived a little bit longer than some of the other ones would say, listen, that's been true in every generation. <laughs> every generation kind of rises up and, you know, kind of figures out what they believe and sometimes sees the inconsistencies between the church and the scripture. And they begin to look at the church in a different way. They're, they get burned by the church as all of us have been. I have been myself. And we get, begin to be anti-church and rebel against the church. Maybe we begin to think that the church, the way it is, whether it's in my experience or my country or whatever, isn't the way Jesus originally designed it to be. And you would be right. There is no form, make no mistake, there is no form, there is no construction of the church that is everything Jesus wanted and intended to be. We are broken and sinful and sick people. And so every church, just like every person, falls desperately short. Every pastor, just like every other person, falls desperately short of the glory of God and messes this up. It doesn't mean we don't recognize it. It doesn't mean we don't criticize it. But if you insult my wife, you and I got problems. Like you and I are not going to be close. We are not going to be on good terms if you bash my wife bride. You know what the New Testament calls the church? The bride of Christ. So imagine offending an infinitely holy, righteous, and powerful God by bashing his bride, by not being gracious and merciful and patient with his bride in whatever form it takes. It doesn't mean we don't call things out. It doesn't mean we don't address failures. It doesn't mean there's not repentance. It doesn't mean there have not been abuses in the church over the years. There definitely has been. And we call it out and we repent and there is discipline when it's needed. But let's not bash the bride. We don't bash the bride of Christ. As fashionable as it may be, a perfect Jesus is perfecting his church and will ultimately perfect his church. I choose to be a part of that process and to engage in that process. As Paul will write later in Colossians, making allowance for each other's faults and forgiving others as I have been forgiven. And I invite you 
to do the same. It's where you will experience the ultimate joy and satisfaction that your heart is searching for. Letter E, last, when we say Jesus is God, here's what we mean. We're saying Jesus is sustainer. Jesus is sustainer. Paul says, Jesus holds all things. He sustains all things together. Hebrews one says it like this. Everything is sustained by the power of Jesus's word. All things are sustained and held together by the power of his word. So if you come in here this morning and you're struggling, you're, you're, you're broken. You can barely hold it together. Cry out to Jesus. Worship Jesus. Come to Jesus. Submit yourself to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus to be your sustainer this morning because Jesus holds everything together, including you and me, by the power of his word. So Jesus is God. That's a pretty big statement to make. If you're here and you're a Christian, it may not be a big, big of a statement to you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, or maybe you're watching or listening online, you're, you're not a follower of Jesus. Uh, you, you have every reason to think you guys are nuts. You're, you're saying Jesus is God, that he is creator of all things? That, that's a bit crazy. And listen, I give it to you. I give it to you. That sounds a little bit crazy unless you know the reason why we believe that. You see, I don't just believe that Jesus is God because that's what my parents told me growing up. In fact, I went through several years, late high school, early college, where I wasn't too sure about all this. I was studying, I was researching, I was trying to find out what is the truth. Not, not what I was told, not, not what I believe, but what is true? What is the truth? Is Jesus really God? Is Jesus really who he said he was? Why do we believe that? Why do I believe Jesus is God? Well, it's for this second reason and it's the second big statement that Paul makes about Jesus here in Colossians chapter one, verse 15 through 23. Here it is. Jesus is alive. Paul says, Jesus is alive. He's the firstborn. Remember that? Among those who rise. He's supreme, the NLT says, among those who rise. Here's what that means. He's the first. He was the first. And so Jesus rose from the grave and says, if you believe in me, even though you die, you will live. You too will rise. But in doing so, Jesus proved that he's God. He, he said, you've seen me, you've seen the father. His family thought he was nuts. And you would too, if your brother went around claiming to be God. James, the brother of Jesus, thought Jesus was nuts. The gospels literally say that Jesus's family thought he was losing his mind. And you would too, if someone in your family went around saying they are God. And if you've seen them, you've seen the father. Well, Jesus didn't, didn't, just, didn't just say it, he proved it. He rose from the grave. Acts chapter one says he spent a period of 40 days with his disciples, eating with them and talking with them, hanging out with them, appearing to them, appearing to people like his brother James, who did not believe his brother Jesus was the son of God, was the Messiah. But now after seeing Jesus risen from the grave, believes that he is the Messiah, that he is the son of God, that he is God in the flesh. And in James chapter one, James says that he's a servant of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, his brother. Jesus rose and appeared to more than 500 people at one time, 1 Corinthians 15 says. 500 people at one time saw Jesus risen from the grave. He appeared to a man named Saul in Acts chapter nine. 
Saul, it says in Acts 9, was breathing out murderous threats against the church. He hated followers of Jesus. He wanted to murder them. He wanted to kill them. He wanted to put them in prison. He couldn't stand Jesus. He couldn't stand Jesus' followers. But then he sees Jesus risen from the grave. Saul becomes Paul, and he becomes a follower of Jesus. He becomes a preacher of Jesus, and he's the one writing this letter right now saying, Jesus is God. And Jesus is creator and Jesus has always existed and Jesus is eternal. And if you saw Jesus, you saw the father. Paul went from jihad to Jesus because he saw Jesus risen from the grave. And so everything that he's writing here right now, everything that he's saying, he's saying because he saw Jesus risen from the dead. And Paul would say it like this. If Christ hasn't been raised, then our entire faith is useless. Here's what Paul was saying. Everything Christian about our faith rises and falls on the resurrection. We're actually right now writing some church catechisms that we hope to launch this fall. Now, let me just kind of define that word for you real quick, because some of you, if you grew up in a Presbyterian church, a Catholic church, Lutheran church, whatever, you may have had a bad experience and have bad kind of connotations with that word catechisms. Okay. Let, Let me explain it. Catechisms is just a form of teaching. It's a question and answer form of teaching that helps us know truth about God and remember it. And so what we're looking at doing is, is writing our own. It'll be kind of the foundation of our full belief statement. But, but here's what we're looking at. Here's some of the things that we're working on. Like, why am I a Christian? Why do I believe the Bible is God's word? Why, why do I believe that Jesus is God? And some of those answers are going to go like this. Well, Jesus rose from the grave and proved that he's God. So Jesus is God. Jesus is creator and designer. That means Jesus' way is always right. That means Jesus, having risen from the grave and proved that he's God, was able to give the apostles authority to write the scripture, which means the scripture is God's word and always right. Which means because Jesus said his words would never pass away, that the Holy Spirit inspired men to write down words from God, these apostles to write down words from God. He guided the church as they codified and canonized the books of the New Testament and then protected the copying of scripture as men wrote and copied from original manuscripts to give us the scripture that we have today. You might be thinking, that's a pretty wild process. So is a man rising from the grave. And if you believe Jesus rose from the dead, then surely you can believe that God through the Holy Spirit can inspire men to write the words of scripture and and give us the books that we need and get rid of the books that we don't need to give us the canon of scripture and, and to protect the copying of scripture throughout the ages so that you and I can have what most scholars would say a 99.8% textual accuracy to what was originally written in the original manuscripts. I mean, that's God folks. And we believe that everything rises and falls in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. So why do I believe the Bible is God's word? Because Jesus Christ rose from the grave and proved that he's God and said his words would never pass away. Well, why do I believe there was a, a Noah and an ark and all these animals? Because Jesus talked about Noah. Why do I believe there was a Jonah and he was in the belly of a fish for several days? Because Jesus talked about Jonah. Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus proved that he is God. Jesus gave authority to the Old Testament as the words of God. And Jesus gave authority to the apostles to write, the, to write words of scripture through the power of the Holy Spirit. It all rises and falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave, whom which Paul said, if Christ hasn't been raised, then our faith is useless and we are wasting our time and our preaching is in vain. We believe that Jesus is God because Jesus is alive and the apostles and hundreds of others went to their graves as martyrs saying, Jesus in fact rose from the grave. So there's a reason 
There's a reason I believe Jesus is God because he proved it by rising from the grave. And he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to heaven except through me. So Jesus is God. Jesus is alive. Well, what else does that mean about Jesus? Well, let's keep going. Verse 20. And through him, Colossians 1, verse 20, and through him, Jesus, God reconciled everything to himself. So, so everything was broken and separated from God. And through Jesus, it says, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you, watch this, who were once far away from God. You were his enemies. Don't, don't say, point to your neighbor and don't say, that's you. Say, that's you. That's me. You were separated from God. You were his enemy. Yes, you. You were his enemy. You were separated from him. By your evil thoughts and actions, because of your sin, you were separated from God. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, watch this, he has brought you into his own presence to have a relationship with him and you are now holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Paul says this, Jesus is God, Jesus is alive. That means Jesus is savior. Jesus is savior. We believe that we are saved by God's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. That's how God reconciles broken, sinful, separated enemies to himself. By his grace alone, grace is receiving what you did not earn, what you are not owed. Through faith alone, that's our response. We put our faith in Jesus in Christ alone. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. That's how we are saved and made right with God. There's an old, big, religious, nasty word in the old translations of the Bible that they replaced with a lot of other words in our newer translations of the Bible to help you know what it means, to help you understand it. But it's an important word. And you need to know this word and you need to know the definition of this word. Here's what the scripture says about Jesus. Jesus was the propitiation of our sins. Here's what that means. He was the sacrifice that turns away God's wrath. Jesus died in your place for your sin and through his death on the cross, took on the wrath of God that was meant for you and me because of our sin. He was the sacrifice that died in our place that took on the wrath of God for sin. Ephesians 2 says it like this. You and I, by our very nature, are objects of the wrath of God because of our sin. And if you don't give your life to Jesus, then God's wrath will be poured out on you for your sin forever in a place called hell. See, people don't like talking about this kind of stuff today. And that's why some translations got rid of this word. Let's just be, I'll just be honest and began to use a lot of other words. Some of it was good reasons to give us more accurate, up-to-date language so that we can understand it. But what Jesus did on the cross was take on the wrath of God that was for you because you were God's enemy. You were separated from God because of your sin, because of your evil thoughts and actions. And Jesus died on the cross. He became sin, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that those of us who are in Christ would become the righteousness of God, would become right with God. And this includes you. Not you, not you, you and me. 
This includes you. You were separated from God. You were his enemy. Now there's two bad responses to this. We're gonna look at two bad responses and then one good response. Two bad responses to this, that I was separated from God, that I was an enemy of God. Here, here's the first one. Once far away from God, <laughs> enemies of God. No, no, you're, not me. Not me, I've been, I've been good my whole life. I've been a Christian my whole life. I, I probably should go to heaven. I deserve to go to heaven. I'm a pretty good person. I smoked everyone in Awanas, Bible drill, quizzing, whatever you wanna call it, whatever you grew up with. I'm a pretty good person. Man, I, I want that kind of upbringing for my kids to know the scripture, memorize the scripture, grow up in church. I, I want that kind of upbringing for my kids. But there's danger there too, make, make no mistake. There's a danger there. Because some of us would say the reason we're going to heaven is because we're a Christian. Well, when, when did you become a Christian? Well, I've been a Christian my whole life. No, you haven't been. The scripture is clear, you were born into sin, into the wrath of God. You have not been a Christian your whole life. You were not born into the family of God. You're born again into the family of God when you give your life to Jesus. You were, make no mistake, you were separated from God. You were his enemy. You were not born a Christian. And to think that you are somehow good enough to go to heaven, that maybe you really haven't been forgiven of all that much is evil in the sight of a holy, righteous, perfect God. It's evil to think like that. Secondly, here, here's the second bad response. How could a good God send a good person to hell? Well, newsflash, you're not good, first of all. And we've talked a lot about this in, in previous weeks, about how could a good God send people to hell? We, we've talked about this before. We don't have time to go into all of this right now, but if you remember from previous messages we've given, we talked about how love and wrath are, are interconnected. And we've talked about how when you sin against God, an infinitely holy, righteous, and eternal God, you've offended and sinned against an eternal being, which means there's an eternal consequence for offending an eternal being. So we, we've talked to some about this before. We don't have time to dive into all of that. But let us just say this, when we judge God, when we judge his word, when we criticize God, when we criticize his word in this way, when we bow up to God, it only results in subjugation. Subjugation, what does that mean? It's a forced bowing. When you bow up to God, you judge God, you criticize God, that will only result in subjugation, which is a forced bowing. Paul said in Philippians chapter two, once again, every knee will bow. And so if you continue to bow up to God, judge God, criticize God, criticize his word, one day you will be subjugated to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and you will bow your knee. We don't judge God. We don't criticize God or his word. So how do we respond? How do we respond to Jesus being God, to being alive, to being savior? What's the right response? Well, let's keep reading here in Colossians chapter one, verse 23. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. What's, what's the truth he's talking about? The truth about Jesus. You must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it that Jesus is God, that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is Savior. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard this good news. 
The good news has been preached all over the world and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. So let's just talk about this for a second. How do we respond to Jesus being God, to Jesus being alive, to Jesus being savior? Well, Paul says here in Colossians chapter one, verse 23, believe the truth about Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth and the life. We believe this truth about Jesus. We don't judge God. We don't bow up to God. We bow down to God. You see, when you bow up, it results in subjugation. When you bow down, it results in salvation. Verse 22, when you give your life to Jesus, when you believe in Jesus, when you believe the truth, verse 22, you're made holy, you're made blameless. You are brought into the presence of God without a single fault. Week one, we said, this is called becoming a saint. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a saint of God. You're a child of the King, which makes you royalty. Your sin has been forgiven. It's been washed away. It's been cast as far as the east is from the west. You've been made holy, blameless in the presence of God without a single fault. Because when God looks at you now, he sees the righteousness of Christ. You've been made right with God. That's your legal standing before God. So you're a saint now. Verse 18, Jesus is the firstborn among all who will rise from the dead. You will rise. Jesus said, you believe in me? I'm the resurrection and the life. You will live even after dying. So you will rise from the grave as a result of your belief in Jesus and you will be brought into his presence. The good news is that Jesus takes those who are far from him, who are his enemies, and he turns them into family. When you give your life to Jesus, you're born again into a new spiritual family, the family of God. Jesus takes enemies and through the blood of his son, he reconciles them and he turns them into family. So here's the question we should be asking as followers of Jesus who have bowed our knee to Jesus. We should be saying, how could a good, holy, righteous, perfect God love me, die for me and give me eternal life? You see, that's the right response to Jesus being God, to Jesus being alive, to Jesus being savior. Paul says, we don't just believe here in verse 23, we continue in the truth, in Jesus. So we believe and then we continue. We grow in our relationship with Jesus and that growth, that continuing in truth, that continuing in Jesus results in a firm foundation where we can stand firm, Paul says. We stand firmly on this truth about Jesus. See, as we grow in Jesus, it produces this firm foundation, Paul says in Ephesians 4, that will cause us to not be blown back and forth by all the craziness of this life and by every new teaching that comes along. We'll get this firm foundation like an anchor that will keep you, what does an anchor do? It keeps you from drifting. Look what Paul says in 123, don't drift. Well, how do you not drift? By believing, continuing, and standing in Jesus. You get this anchor that will keep you from drifting. Most of us know, if you spend any time in the ocean, if you just stand there, if you play in the ocean, you're going to drift. You've gotta make serious effort to stay right where you're at and to not drift down the coast. You've gotta be anchored. You see, believing in Jesus, salvation takes no effort. You, you trust in Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. But continuing, standing, not drifting takes work, it takes effort. 
That sanctification process is difficult. It takes continual growth. It takes continual repentance and corporate worship. It, 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 it takes some effort there to not drift away from Jesus. Paul says, I proclaim Jesus. I've been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. I've been telling the good news. I've been preaching the news all over the world, Paul says. You see, we respond to Jesus being God, Jesus being savior, Jesus being alive by proclaiming the good news about Jesus all over the world. That's how we respond to this good news. And friends, church is doing all of these things together. That's what church is. That's what the body of Christ is supposed to be about. Doing everything that we just talked about together. We're not just attending church. We are passionately following Jesus. I'm at 40 minutes and 23 seconds as we speak. If you haven't noticed it by now, we could care less about 25 and 30 minute messages. In fact, our services were going long. We just extended the service. We made it to where our services could go longer. Why? Because we could care less about comfortable, casual Christianity for you to check off a box on your religious routine, to go eat lunch, to get to your baseball games and football games. We could care less about that. In fact, we want to kill that in us. This casual, comfortable Christianity is sucking the life and has sucked the life out of followers of Jesus. And we rebuke that and we run from that. We repent from that. And we do that by passionately following Jesus together as the body of Christ. And so we will never be okay with casual, comfortable American Christianity here. If that's what you're after, that's just not us. I'm just telling you right now, we are about passionately following Jesus, preaching about Jesus, making disciples of Jesus. That's what we're here to do. Passionately follow Jesus and make him supreme in our lives and over everything that has to do with our day-to-day -day life. So much of American Christianity, there's a disconnect between our faith, what we sing about and what we read about in our lives. And we rebuke that and repent from that. And we run from that into the arms of Jesus. We will passionately follow Jesus here. And the way we do this and the way we're going to wake up and kill this in us is by preaching about Jesus and praying for the Holy Spirit to awaken this fire inside of us and tune our hearts to the truth that Paul is trying to communicate to us that I was created by Jesus and for Jesus. This is why I'm on this planet is to know Jesus, follow Jesus and worship Jesus. How was I created? by Jesus, so I'm gonna do things his way. Why was I created? For Jesus, so I'm gonna know him and worship him and preach and proclaim his good name. It's why I'm here, it's why you're here. Romans chapter 11, verse 36, Paul said it like this, for everything comes from him and exists by his power, watch this, and is intended for his glory. You and I exist for the fame of Jesus. That's why you're on this planet and your ultimate satisfaction and joy in this life will be found as you live for the glory of his Jesus. And so Paul says, all glory to him forever. Your purpose isn't a profession, it's not a position, it's not a location, your purpose is a person. And his name is Jesus.
And that's where your ultimate satisfaction and joy are going to be found is by living life the way it was designed to be lived for Jesus in a relationship with Jesus. And so watch this. When you live for what's primary, then you can properly enjoy all that is secondary. When you live for what's primary, that's Jesus, then you'll be able to properly enjoy all these secondary things. When you seek Jesus first, he would say, all things will be added unto you. Everything else will be enjoyed in its proper place. Otherwise, listen to me, look at me. Otherwise, you're chasing the wind. If you make things secondary, primary, you are chasing the wind and you will experience the emptiness, the pain and the hunger and the thirst that will never be quenched by doing so. You see, when you make things primary that are designed to be secondary, you're always gonna feel empty. When you make things primary that were designed to be secondary, you'll always feel empty. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Silver Chair, a part of the Chronicles of Narnia, he wrote about a young girl named Jill who had entered these woods in the land of Narnia with her friend Eustace. Well, due to poor judgment, she finds herself alone and separated from Eustace. She's scared, she's alone, she's thirsty, she's searching for water. She finds a stream where she can go and take a drink, but she stops dead in her tracks, overcome with fear because she sees a lion. This lion's name is Aslan. Aslan says to Jill, are you not thirsty? Said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill was gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked a whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to, not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now, without noticing it, she'd come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I've swallowed up girls and boys, men and women, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink then, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other stream to drink from. When the crowds deserted Jesus, they stopped following Jesus. Jesus looked at the 12. Things were getting a little bit more difficult. The messages were getting a little bit harder. Jesus looks at the 12 and he says, are you gonna desert me too? And Peter steps up and says, Jesus, you are the Holy One of God. You are God. You're our savior. You're the Holy one of God. You have the words of life. We have nowhere else to go, Jesus. You're you're God. You have the words of life. We have nowhere else to go. Peter would say it like this in Acts chapter two. God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. He is God. 
In Acts chapter four, Peter would say it like this. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we can be saved. If you continue to bow up to Jesus, it will only result in subjugation. But if you will bow down, it will result in your salvation. And if that's you and you wanna give your life to Jesus this morning, jump on our app, fill out our connect form. Let us know that you're giving your life to Jesus today. Would you pray with me? Just right now, every head bowed, every eye closed, this is just between you and God right now. I just wanna ask you a question for you to pray about. Whether you're a Christian, a non-Christian, you're into the church thing, you're not. Let, Let me just ask you a question for you to consider before you leave our time here together, just between you and God. What if you reach all your personal and professional goals, become a raving success, attaining all your profession and position have to offer, but you miss out on the purpose for which you were created. Holy Spirit, would you write on our hearts right now? Would you awaken in our hearts right now that Christ supreme is the theme of our lives and our ultimate satisfaction and joy will be found in living the way we were designed for the glory of Jesus. Jesus, we pray in your name because there is no other name. There is no other stream. You are the Holy One of God.